All right, if everyone wants to grab a seat, then we are going to get started here very shortly. All right, we're on page 21. If anyone doesn't have a booklet, there are, I think there's still a few copies on the... I've got a red light. I think the batteries. Okay. If we run. There we go. So that means billions and billions, but we leave room for the exception of the one man, 
Jesus Christ, okay, who was truly human, but not with sin. And again, this, uh, your understanding of covenants and your understanding of gender is going to come through uh, on this because uh, who represents the human family? Father. Okay? Who represents a married couple? The husband. Okay? So gender roles, properly defined, are there right from the beginning. So this is important. And we want to preserve the true humanity of Jesus Christ uh, and the significance of the virgin birth. Why this is significant. Jesus is truly human, uh, but does not have an earthly father to inherit a sinful nature from. So this is important, important stuff. That's as far as we got last week. Any questions on that? So far, so good? Missing a piece? Keep moving? All right. Their descendants are now conceived in sin. And let's stop right there. Who wants to take Psalm 51.5? Over here? Okay. And who wants to take Job 14.4? Caleb? Okay. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 51.5. Was that Keith's voice I heard, or who did I hear? Yeah? Okay. Keith, Psalm 51.5. Okay. Brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Now what does that mean? What could this all mean? Probably we all know what it means. What are some... If you don't have outside information, what are some possible interpretations of this? This is David talking. Uh, go ahead. That's a possible interpretation, right? If we have no outside information, that's what this could be, right? This could be an adultery reference, right? I was conceived in sin because the, the sexual act that caused me is itself sinful. That is a possible interpretation, the sinful nature of the parents. Okay. Yep. Yep. And knowing what we know from outside information of those two possibilities, which one do we know it must be? Number two. Right? David's parents were married. The sexual act that caused David was not in any way sinful or dirty or wrong. Okay? So when David says in, uh, in sin... Am I conceived? He's saying, I am the result of a sinful man and a sinful woman. Nothing wrong with what they did in that particular act that caused me. Uh, But by nature, both of these people are sinful. Therefore, I am sinful. Okay? This is how the fall gets transmitted from father to son and to daughter. Okay? This is... Very significant stuff. We talked a little bit, well, we've talked a number of times about the Pelagian heresy that even Roman Catholicism firmly rejects as being far too works-oriented. And I've suggested that's probably the majority view among evangelicals today. Okay? Is that we didn't inherit a sin nature. We're born basically good. Babies are neutral. Okay? And you look at most babies, and they're cute enough that that could seem like it's plausible. Are babies born neutral? Are babies morally neutral? No, they are not. They are not. Okay? 
I don't want to tire of referencing G.K. Chesterton, um, but as a Roman Catholic, he said, of all Christian doctrine, the easiest one to prove apart from Scripture is the doctrine of original sin. Okay, this one's just easy. Okay, tell me one toddler that doesn't fight for a toy. Point to me one man in the workplace that isn't leveraging uh, to get above somebody else. Okay, tell me one woman who isn't envious of another woman's life or her house or something. Right? Like, just look. This is easy stuff to prove. This is low-hanging fruit. Okay. Uh, and I would agree with Chesterton here. This is just, it, it's obvious. We're born sinful. We are not born okay. okay? This is why uh, the rebirth is so important. Because the nature we show up here with is corrupt. From front to back, top to bottom. We need a new heart. We need a new nature. We need to be born again. <clears throat> Job 14.4. Who's got that? All right, Caleb, what does that verse mean? Yeah. If you start with two corrupt things, what are you going to get? A corrupt thing, right? And you see how close this is to Jesus' teaching? If you've got a fig bush, what's the fruit that's going to come out of it? Figs? If you've got a, a thorn bush, what's going to grow out of it? <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. I'm just wondering if I should admit that I was listening to the poison song, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, last night. But I don't think I'll admit to that. Okay. Yeah, so this is, this is heavy-duty stuff. And again, this, this chapter isn't meant to be depressing. It's not meant... Uh, to make us all think that we're a bunch of worms and we can't possibly get out of this situation, what it is meant to do is to crush us before God's law so that we're ready for the gospel. Okay? The good news is the same size as the bad news. And if the bad news is, yeah, we make some mistakes, uh, then a life coach like Dr. Phil might be up to the task. Okay? Or a really inspirational Christian speaker who somehow never gets to the gospel might be up to the task. If we are radically corrupt in every part of ourselves, body, soul, mind, we need a radical gospel. We need amazing grace to recover us from that. And so again, when you're reading this, don't think, okay, so this is just to make me feel bad. Yes, but for a moment. <laughs> okay, it, It's meant to make you feel bad enough for long enough that you're ready for the gospel, and then we are freed from this. Goes on to say, and we are by nature children of wrath. Footnote 8. Who wants to read from Ephesians? Who's got that? Ephesians 2. Howard. Okay. So? I mean, it's pretty clear. There's not a lot of exposition that needs to happen here. What are we by nature? Sinners. Children of wrath. Children of wrath. And again, I, this is, for me, I've got my own experiences that kind of shape the way I think about this thing, these things. But how much do you, 
in the evangelical world, how much are we hearing this these days? Radical corruption in need of a radical gospel. And how much of Christianity has become inspirational? And I've got nothing against inspiration. It's good, but it's not adequate. Okay? Okay? That would be my experience. But again, I don't want to be cynical. I don't want to be see it as worse than it is. But I, I tend to agree with that. Is that a cynical take, or is that where we are in history? No, no one's rushing to say otherwise. So I'll leave it there. If, if nothing else, it's, it's food for thought. It's food for thought, if nothing else. What kind of a gospel are we preaching? Uh, And then it says, We are the servants of sin and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets us free. Who wants to take those two passages in Romans? Someone called over there? Diane? Okay, good. Uh, Who wants to take Hebrews? Kenan? Okay. Uh, And then 1 Thessalonians. Evangeline? Okay. So let's go. Let's go to Romans. Okay. So again, that goes back to this doctrine of original sin. Okay. And original means in terms of origin, not original as in, oh, no one's thought of this before. I've come, you know, I've thought of a new way to sin, okay? That's not what original sin means, and it's not just referring to the, the first sin, although it certainly is, but original has to do with origins. That's the origin of sin, and it works its way out all through history, all through humans. So when we talk about original sin, we're talking about one, where it originated from, and then how it's transmitted, uh, that apart from Christ, there's not an exception uh, to this rule. Who had Hebrews? Kenan. Okay, very good. So here you have Christ coming, and his humanity is important because he needs to represent us, and he's crushing the head of this thing right at the very source, uh, which is the devil itself, the power of death, right? So Jesus' head-crushing mission that starts in Genesis 3.15 works its way out uh, till its completion, okay? So this is the long story. Uh, one, one person, and it's not long ago we talked about the, the skull-crushing mission of Christ um, that's already promised to Eve in the curse. One pastor, who I enjoy quite a bit, has said with his little grandkids, after they do catechism with the little grandkids, then he asks them, sum up the, sum up the whole Bible in one sentence. Uh, and he teaches them to say, uh, the whole Bible in one sentence is crush the dragon, get the girl. Okay? 
That's the story of Scripture. Crush the dragon, get the girl. Okay, the church is the bride of Christ. That's the girl that Jesus comes to get, uh, and he crushes the head of the serpent. Okay, so crush the dragon, get the girl. And isn't it interesting how many of our stories we find interesting that follow that plot? <laughs> okay, lots of them follow that plot, and I'd say that that plot resonates with us because that's actually what we're made for. That plot resonates with us because that's the story of history. Therefore, we find those other stories that tell it in a different way interesting. <clears throat> Lastly, First Thessalonians. Who had that? Okay, yes, Kate, then add. Yeah, and it, we've had that before. Please add as needed then, yep. Okay, very good. Okay, so we got the whole gospel message going out, delivering people, okay? And who sets us free, ultimately? Jesus. What a Sunday school answer, hey? (laughs) Chuck Swindoll has a story of uh, teaching a Sunday school class, and the teacher was trying to get the kids to open up a little bit, and, and she had a little wildlife story. She said, what, what's gray and bushy and, and, and eats nuts and jumps from tree to tree? Well, it seems pretty obvious, but that can't be the Sunday school answer. So she says, finally, one of the kids said, Jesus? <laughs> but in this case, that is actually the correct Sunday school answer, is Jesus. Okay? And note here, again... Uh, This isn't to leave us in despair. This is to move us from despair uh, to joy. But look at what he sets us free from. What does he set us free from? Yeah, the wrath to come. Okay, the wrath to come. And we need to keep that in mind when we think about the gospel presentation that we give is what, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Okay? One of those little jarring sayings that that helps to summarize this, uh, I think, is this old saying that God saves us from Himself, for Himself, by Himself. Okay? Ultimately, we are saved from God. Okay? Ultimately, you're saved from God. Okay? Because once you're dead, your sins can't hurt you anymore, but the wrath of God can. Okay? And wrath isn't this autonomous thing that, uh, like in the Far Side cartoons, where Satan is the king of hell, and he's enjoying torturing people. Satan's not enjoying hell any more than anyone else. Okay? Satan is not the king of hell. Satan is getting the fiercest punishment in hell. Okay? He's not enjoying it. The wrath to come is God's wrath, not Satan's wrath. Okay? And so God has entered into this rescue mission to save us by himself. He does the work of salvation and for himself, ultimately for his glory and for our joy. <clears throat> so, are we done section three? Questions? Discussion on that? 
Good to move on? All right. Maybe we can get these next two done this week. Section 4. All actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good, and we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. Okay? So when we sin, where did that sin come from? By the time you take a sinful action, what's the root of that sinful action? Why did you do it? Human nature? Yep. Yeah, so why do we do anything that we do, good or evil? Why do we do it? It's what we desire to do. It's what we want to do. That's what makes human choices meaningful, is that they reflect what's happening in the heart. 100% of the time, with absolutely zero exceptions in history, we do what we want to do. Well, that's not true. Matt, some guy came up to you and put a gun to your head and said, your wallet or your life. I don't want either of those options. But here's the thing. My options have been limited. <laughs> I've got two options. And what, what am I going to choose? I'm still going to choose the one I most want. I'm going to give him my wallet. Because now that my choices have been limited to two, I'm still choosing what I want. I want to keep my life... So I desire to keep my life more than I desire to keep my wallet. Okay? But you see, even in an action like that, we're still doing what we want to do. Okay? That's the nature of human free will. Human free will is not that we can do anything. We can't. We can do what we want to do. We can do what we most strongly desire, and that's what makes our choices meaningful. And we've already just discovered, what do we want to do apart from Christ? That which is evil. Okay? That which is evil. We, we do it because we want to. And so this first sentence here, all transgressions arise from this first corruption. So our nature is disordered, our nature is bent, therefore you can expect that our actions are going to be bent. <clears throat> um, let's look at the, the text here. Who wants to take James 1? Tim's got it, and Matthew 15. Who's got that? Mr. Ginter, okay. Go ahead, Tim. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. For desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Okay. So, with what Tim just read, who knows the show The Simpsons? I'm not saying you have to agree it's a good show, but. Uh, I haven't watched it in many years, but when I was a kid, Bart Simpson, whenever he would do something bad and he got in trouble for it, what would he say? Well, he'd say that, but he'd say, the devil made me do it. Right? That's his get-out-of-jail-free card. The devil made me do it. Did he get his theology from James chapter 1? Did the devil make me do it? No. Did the devil make Eve do it? No. No. Did he entice? Did he lure? Yep. Does Satan have control over your affections? He doesn't have control. He can tempt, he can lure, he can bait, he can overpromise and underliver, he can do all that. But he cannot control your affections. 
Okay? And so James puts the onus for sin on who? Me. It's me. I did it. I, and I did it knowingly. And I did it because I wanted to. Something's wrong with me. Something's disordered inside of me. And it talks about the progression of sin here. Okay? Don't say I'm being tempted. And it also says don't, don't say I'm being tempted by God. Okay? Because God doesn't tempt. Uh, but, um, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, conceive, it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. A couple weeks ago, when Tanya and me were gone at the uh, marriage retreat, then Chris Wold came and spoke. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount. And does, who remembers what Chris spoke on? We all remember, right? On Jesus uh, talking in the Sermon on the Mount about lust and anger. Okay? Lust and anger. What sins are lust and anger the root of? What does Jesus say? If you've got anger in your heart, you're guilty of? And if you lust after a woman who's not your wife, you're guilty of? Adultery. And that's before your body commits those sins externally, it, it's seed form, right? Anger is the seed of murder. Lust is the seed of adultery, okay? And so while we cannot help that we may be externally tempted by something or that uh, something may seem immediately attractive to us, to take the bait and start thinking about it is just going to grow. It's going to grow, And then James says in verse 15, the desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. You see this progression? Where do you got to kill this thing? You kill it when it's young. Okay? When do you go clean up your garden? When do you weed your garden? After the thistles are like this? (laughs) Sometimes. And you better do it then than wait another day. But... How much easier is your life if you can pull out little germinated weed sprouts, right? It, it's so much easier. Okay? That's where we've got to kill it. That's where we've got to kill it. Kill it at the root. Matthew 15, 19. Yeah. Okay, so again, where's the root of the sin that you see with the eye? If we see sin with our eyes, where did that sin come from? Came from out of came from out of the heart, right? That's what we want. Okay, Jesus says elsewhere that whatever the, the, the it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Okay, what's in us will come out, and if we have not addressed our sinful nature that it's just going to come out. That's just how it's going to be. Okay, and that's our nature is inherited and the inheritance we have from our first parents is sinful. So by it we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good and we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. Who's got Romans 8? 
And who's got Colossians 1? Howard's got it. All right, Keith, go ahead. Romans 8. Okay. Keith, if we cannot submit to God's law, is that because God is keeping us away from Him? Why, why does it say we cannot? That's right. It doesn't say... And, yeah, well, and here's the thing. Who's ever been corrected by an elementary school? You know, Miss Plett, can I go to the washroom? Everyone had the same grade one teacher, right? <laughs> okay, we all did. And what did she tell every last one of us? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I don't know. Can you, right? Can is a, uh, is, a, is a statement of ability. May is a statement of permission. It doesn't say that we may not. Okay? God commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay? So it's not God keeping us away. It's not that we may not come. We may not submit to his law. We're commanded to. It's that we can not submit to God's law. This is in here that's keeping me away. I can't. And the reason I can't is because I don't want to. There's nothing in me that wants God apart from the rebirth. Okay? So again, this is a question of what kind of a nature we have. Are we represented by Adam or are we represented by Christ? So this is a statement of nature. Howard, Colossians. Okay. Where does the hostility come from? And it's not a trick question. Howard just read it. Where's the hostility? In your mind. Okay? What controls our actions? Our minds. Right? Again, so this is we're doing what we want to do, and we're alienated from God, so we do the kinds of things that alienate us from God. And I, uh, last week after Sunday school, I had a discussion with someone. Well, what about unbelievers who do good things? How do we square that? Okay, so the Bible seems to be pretty clear that apart from God, we want to do nothing good. And what about all these unbelieving philanthropists that write big checks to humanitarian organizations? How do we square that? Can everyone hear what Keith, Keith said? Does that make sense? Okay. I want to grow my business. I want to be on the Chamber of Commerce. Um, and a good way I can do that is to make a significant donation to you know, the soup kitchen. And here's the thing. Does, does that money or those actions by unbelievers, does it do good in the world? Yeah, sure it does. Of course it does. Right? Uh, it doesn't matter whose money is funding the soup kitchen. People are getting fed. Okay, so God is using that to minister to his creation as a positive good. Now, for the person who wrote that check, has the needle of righteousness budged? It has not. It has not budged in the least. Okay, because as it says in Romans, all that does not proceed from faith is sin. It's sin. 
What? It's a sin to do a humanitarian effort? Well, the thing itself isn't sinful, but if you're not doing it for the glory of God, we are doing it for the glory of man, right? I'm, I'm doing it to get rid of the guilt. What does it cost to get rid of the guilt? About 20 bucks, right? You write a check for about 20 bucks and now you're a good person, right? This is how we're wired, okay? So yes to good works, yes we want to, but if it's not done for the glory of Jesus Christ, it's just, it's not moving the needle, right? What does the prophet Isaiah say? All your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And I've shared that before. How filthy are those rags? Go back to the Hebrew. What is that? It's menstrual rags. Okay? And the prophet doesn't say that's how your unrighteous deeds look. This is what your good works look like to God. It's about this value. Okay? It has not moved the needle of righteousness. Christ and Christ alone can give you the righteousness that we need to satisfy the Father. And after we are saved, our righteous acts uh, truly are rewarded, okay? But now we're doing it as Christians. Now we're doing it for the glory of God. Does that make sense, how we can understand that? That we see unbelievers doing good things, but it's not moving them closer to God, okay? It's not righteous in its root, okay? It's still self-serving, if you're about my age, you remember uh, the famine in Ethiopia, and a bunch of musicians, really talented musicians, got together and did We Are the World. Who remembers We Are the World? Okay? And it's mostly artists I enjoy, so I'm not saying anything bad about anyone who was there musically. There's a line in there that is a bit of a tell. There's a choice we're making, we're saving our own lives. Okay, so Bruce Springsteen and Michael Jackson are there. Why? Because they're saving their own lives. Okay? We're not helping the people in Africa because they're made in the image of God and because I repented of my sin and I want to glorify God by helping fellow image bearers. Okay? Somehow these people know they're people, I'm a person, there's got to be some kind of human solidarity, something, I've got to be doing some good works. Okay? Therefore, we're doing this. I, Bob Dylan, am doing something for myself by singing this song for foreign aid. And lest we think this is just the stuff of celebrities, who's ever been to a funeral where the person being eulogized seemed to be sinless suddenly now that they're dead? Okay? Here's what's happening. Here's the secret levers behind this that I think we don't even psychologically understand ourselves. I think we need a biblical anthropology to understand this. The reason we do that at funerals is not for the sake of the one in the coffin. We're doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for ourselves. Why? Why would we do that for ourselves? Well, because if that person's sins can be overlooked, if they become trivial, okay, and it wasn't so sinful after all, maybe I'm not in such big trouble. I get out of jail free if that person was a good person. See what we do? See, this is what's happening. Whether we understand it or not, and that's another thing about biblical anthropology, frequently we don't understand our own actions. Why do some things just seem so instinctive? And Scripture gives us the answer. Scripture understands our heart better than we do.
I'll stop there. Does that make sense? Are we making sense of human behavior? Of what Scripture says about who we are? Okay. And absolutely nothing against Bruce Springsteen. He was crushing it in the 80s. Great voice, great music. But he needs a Savior, just like me and you do. All right. Let's wrap up this last one so we can move on to something happier next week. Section 5. During this life, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all actions arising from it are truly and actually sin. Okay, so let's break this in pieces again. During this life, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. What's regeneration? Coming to faith in Christ? Yep. Regeneration just means to create something, right? Your generator creates energy. The book of Genesis is the origin story. Okay? It's the creation account. So to generate something means to create it. So if we are regenerated, that means we are re-created. Okay? We're recreated. That's the rebirth. Okay? So, based on that, I'm assuming this is a room full of Christians. We've been born again. We've got the Spirit of God living in us. Which means we're now sin-free, right? Come on, guys. <laughs> we're Christians here. Who's sin-free? Just me? And Andrew. Okay. And we are both now guilty of lying, so I guess we're back to square one. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so we're living in this 80-year span or 60-year span or 100-year span, depending on when you were reborn and how long you'll live. There's these overlapping ages, The old man is coming to death and the new man is being raised up. Okay? And the Bible talks lots about overlapping ages and it happens on a small scale in us. The old man is slowly dying, the new man is slowly being raised up. Right? And that's consistent with with John saying he must increase and I must decrease. Right? The old man is dying, the new man is being raised up. Okay, so even Christians continue to struggle against sin. Who wants to take Romans 8? Romans 7, pardon me. Ronald, who wants to read from Ecclesiastes? Tim, and lastly, 1 John. Tyson, okay. So let's go through this. Uh... Whoever had Romans, go ahead.
Wow. Who can sympathize with the Apostle Paul? I know what's right. I know what I ought to do. But man, here I am again. Man, I barked at my kids again. And Matt, you're 43 years old. You should get it by now. Come on. This is a pastoral bit of Scripture because this is the human experience. There's, <laughs> there's two natures at war. Okay? And we are Christians, so we know that our regenerated nature is the eternal one that is being raised up. But boy, this is a fight. Boy, it's a fight. And it's frustrating and it's discouraging. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, it would feel like giving up. Okay? But if your life is like what I just described, and I don't doubt it is, each with their own particular sins, are we in good company? If this was the Apostle Paul felt the same way as you, are we at least in good company? Okay? Okay? This is, yes, it's a fight. It's a fight we're going to win. Okay? And when we fight out of a winning attitude, it changes the nature of the fight. Okay? I always use the example of a hockey team. If you've got a hockey team and the whole dressing room knows we're going to lose this game and then they're gripping their sticks and they're missing passes and they're missing hits, and every, they're going to play like losers, right? Because they're thinking like losers. If you've got a team that's on a winning streak uh, and they know, well, we can do this, they're going to play like winners. And you know what happens? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy both ways. We get what we aim for. And if we have a I lose attitude, you're going to hit your target perfectly. Okay? If you have a winning attitude, through the power of Christ, not me, but through the power of Christ, I can be victorious over sin, uh, we're also going to tend to get what we aim for. Imperfectly. But the trajectory will be uh, progress. <clears throat> okay? And we are more than conquerors in Christ. So we fight sin, uh, not out of a losing attitude, but out of a hopeful, uh, grace-filled, grace-fueled mindset. Who wants to take? Uh, who had Ecclesiastes? Tim. Okay. So, did Solomon see it? Did he see what the, the same thing the Apostle Paul saw? Yeah, he did. He did. First John one. Okay. When I was a kid, one of my bus drivers uh, was from a quite a different Christian tradition, uh, and they taught actual like full holiness, full sanctification, um, and he was quite encouraging to us kids who seemed to still struggle with sin on the bus that it had been 14 years since he had sinned, and I think he meant that as an encouragement. But I'm thinking, the moment you told me that, the counter starts over again. Because <laughs> okay? you just lied to me. Okay? Um, and that doesn't mean that's not what we strive for, but it does mean that this is part of the human experience. And we're deceiving ourselves if we're thinking we are without sin. Okay? We're deceiving ourselves. <clears throat> Amen. Did everyone hear what Inga just read? From the Puritan Thomas Watson. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet.
There's a lot of power in something like that. If, if I'm basically okay and I just need some help to kind of guide my way through life, Christ will not be nearly as sweet as it was for John Newton who made money selling people's lives and being a drunken cuss on slave ships. That's a man who knows that grace is amazing because his sin was very bitter. Amen. Let's finish up here. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all actions arising from it are truly and actually sin. And we're back in Romans 7. Who wants to take that? I'm going to volunteer Andrew Minan. Why? Because I can. (laughs) And who wants Galatians? Kenan's got it? Okay. Andrew, Romans 7. You want to go through to the end of 25? Or if you've closed it up already, I can finish it off. Okay, so there we see Paul's battle in his sanctification again. The old man being put to death and the new man being raised up. And then Galatians. Keenan, you have that? Okay, so same battle being described there. So hopefully this is clear. Can we see this for regenerated Christians, the battle is on? And now do you see how silly it is if people offer Christianity because it's going to make your life easier? Is this battle happening in unregenerate people? No. There's, new, there's no new nature to be at war with the old one. There's just the old nature. Is this battle happening with those who have gone on before us? Those who are in heaven? No. Because the old man is completely dead. Right? This is only a battle for regenerate people here Uh, on earth. And I'll make one last note. We've covered it before, so I'm not going to belabor it. But this point here, both this corruption of nature and all actions arising from it are truly and actually sin. This cannot be stressed enough in our current situation. The desire to sin, okay, taking that temptation and working with it and feeding it, the desire to sin is itself sinful. Okay? And this is under such attack with the, well, in particular, the gay celibate Christian movement, right? I'm a gay Christian. 
I know the action is wrong, so I'm not going to do the action, but I'm still going to identify by my sinful desire. Okay? And again, would it be healthy or wise for a heterosexual man to identify as an adulterous Christian? Okay? It would be ridiculous, and we all know that. Okay? Well, because I'm attracted to other women, so I'm going to identify as an adulterous Christian. It's just beyond unwise. So why do we do it with homosexual attraction? Okay? We do not identify by our sinful desires. Those desires need to be worked against. That's the root of where this fight's happening. That's all that we've learned about. Okay? So we should never identify ourselves as Christians by our sinful desires. We identify by Christ. Okay? Such were some of you, it says in 1 Corinthians. Such were some of you. We're now in Christ. That's our identity. Let's close in prayer and then we can have coffee. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, the way your word teaches us. And thank you for also for the way that you've used uh, your church through history to help to guide and instruct us. Lord, I pray that as we move from uh, this time now to fellowship uh, and then on to corporate worship, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that we would be built up, and that we would find that our lasting joy comes only and ultimately from you. I pray that hearing about our sin would not cause us to despair, but to be all that much more eager to receive your grace and to delight in it, to grow in it, and to overflow with joy because of it. Lord, I pray that for each person here this morning. Thank you for your kindness to us, and we want to ask for your blessing on the rest of this morning. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.